this episode of our Construction Law Back to Basics NEC Contracts podcast series, a series of podcasts by Stevens and Bolton's construction and engineering team designed to provide listeners with an overview of the construction industry standard form NEC contracts. I'm Lauren Malnick, an associate at Stevens and Bolton, and I'm joined today by Claire Perry, senior associate. In the last episode, our colleague, Gwilym Evans and Tom O'Dell, looked at payment under an NEC contract, focusing on interim payments and the final account process. In this episode, Claire and I will be looking at defects, termination and disputes. So Claire, in our first series of podcasts, you and I discussed the key areas of dispute and dispute resolution procedures in the context of a construction project. But in that episode, we focused on the provisions under a JCT design and build contract. Do you think this discussion will be materially different to the considerations we looked at then? Well, while there might be a couple of similarities, there are key differences under the NEC forms of contracts. As was mentioned in the first episode of this series, the NEC contracts are written in a different style of language and use very different terminology to most other standard form construction contracts that we're used to. The NEC authors wanted to promote collaboration between the parties throughout the project and avoid adversarial relationships from developing. But as we know, even with the best of intentions, it is inevitable that disputes will sometimes arise and the NEC form of contract has detailed provisions for dealing with defects, termination and disputes. Can we have a look at the defects provisions first? Yes, please. Okay, so we know that it's common in construction projects for defects to manifest or appear in the works. Most construction contracts require the contractor to return to site to rectify defects which arise or are discovered during a specified period after practical completion of the works. This is typically referred to in the construction industry as the defects liability period. But defect is not a term of art and there is no standard definition of what constitutes a defect in building works. However, unlike the JCT form of contract, NEC attempts to define what is a defect, being a part of the works which is not in accordance with the scope, or where part of the works are designed by the contractor, than if they are not in accordance with applicable law or the design accepted by the project manager. Pursuant to clause 43.2 of the NEC4 ECC contract, the supervisor, the client's representative, may notify the contractor of a defect as soon as it finds it. Yes, but in contrast to the position under JCT and FIDIC, the contractor under NEC must also correct a defect even if it is not notified by the supervisor. And rather than using a defined defects liability period, the NEC contracts refer to a defects date, which is typically six or 12 months after practical completion. The defects correction period is set out in the contract data and defines the maximum period within which the contractor must rectify a notified defect, although the contractor is required to rectify defects whether they are notified to it or not. For defects notified before completion, the defects correction period begins on completion. For defects notified after completion, but before the defects date, it begins on notification. Different defects correction periods can be specified for different types of defects. So what happens if the contractor does not make good a defect within the relevant period? Well, sticking with NEC, for ECC, under clause 46.1, if the contractor has been given access to the site and has not made good a defect within the relevant period, the client will assess the cost of getting others to do the work and the contractor pays this amount. Clause 46.2 states that if the contractor is not given access, the contractor only needs to pay the amount it would have cost the contractor to do the work. 
Okay. And then what happens after the defects date that has been specified in the contract? So after the defects date, the supervisor issues a defect certificate, which either certifies that there are no remaining patent defects or lists any uncorrected defects. The only circumstances when the defect certificate might not be issued on the defect date is if a previously notified defect has a defects correction period that ends after the defect date, in which case it is issued on that later date. The parties are also permitted to agree that certain defects need not be rectified, and in this case the contractor must submit a quotation for reduced prices, an earlier completion date or both, and an adjustment is then made to the scope. Clause 43.3 also confirms the contractor's continuing liability for defects in the works after the defect state, which is important. Thanks Claire. So that was a brief overview of the defects provisions. Let's now look at termination. As with other standard forms of construction contracts, the NEC contains detailed provisions for termination, including the grounds on which parties can terminate and consequences for the parties following termination, albeit these are less extensive and are intended to be simpler to use than those found in, for example, the JCT suite of contracts. A point to note is that under NEC, it is the contractor's obligation to provide the works which is terminated, not the contract itself. This distinction is intended to ensure that post-termination provisions contained in the contract survive and are enforceable. As always, termination should be considered very carefully. If the termination is wrongful or the correct procedures are not followed to the letter, the purported termination may amount to a repudiatory breach of contract by the party seeking to terminate. And if the other party disputes the purported termination, this could result in a costly dispute. Yeah, so to try and avoid that, NEC 4 lists 22 separate reasons upon which the client, contractor or either party may rely in order to terminate. These reasons are set out in Clause 91 and numbered R1 to R22. In addition, there is a secondary option X11, which allows the client to terminate the contract at will. So looking at termination by the client, broadly, the client can terminate for contractor default, which includes things like substantially failing to comply with its obligations um, or substantially hindering the client or others or breaking health and safety regulations. Um, and it's worth noting that for most of these points, the contract sets out time periods during which the contractor must be given notify, notice to rectify its default, but failing that the client is then able to terminate. Um, and the other one for the client is force majeure. Um, just note that in JCT contracts, either party may terminate for force majeure, but under NEC, it's only the client who has this right. Um, Lauren, what about the contractor's options? Well, as is usually in construction contracts, the contractor has far fewer grounds on which it can terminate the contract. In the NEC 4, this can be for non-payment, where the amount is 13 weeks overdue, but it's worth remembering here that the contractor would probably have the right to suspend performance under the Construction Act rather than terminate if it wished to do so. And also where the contractor has been instructed to stop or not start the works or a substantial part of the works due to a default by the client and no instruction has been given to restart or start within 13 weeks. But also due to the Insolvency Act 1986, it's worth noting as well that client insolvency may prevent the contractor from terminating the contract, even where the entitlement to terminate arose before the client became subject to any insolvency procedure. And then we have termination by either party. 
So there are further scenarios where either party may terminate the contract, but these are limited. There are rights in the event of insolvency of either party, but these need to be carefully considered in relation to the Insolvency Act, as Lauren just mentioned. The only one likely to be of practical use is where the contractor has been instructed to stop or not start the works or a substantial part of the works, not due to a default by either party, and no instruction is given to restart or start within 13 weeks. So now we have covered the grounds of termination under the contract. Lauren, can you take us through some of the consequences of termination? Of course. So the NEC contains a termination table at clause 90.2, which sets out the procedures to be followed on termination and the payments to be made on termination. The procedures and payments to be followed depend on the reason for termination and which party has terminated. In all cases, once the project manager issues a termination certificate, the contractor immediately stops works and the procedures for termination are implemented. The client may complete the works and use any plant and materials to which it has title. Yes, and where the client terminates due to contractor breach or insolvency, it may instruct the contractor to leave the site and remove any equipment, plant and materials and assign the benefit of any subcontracts to it. The client may also use the contractor's equipment to complete the works where such equipment is owned by the contractor. But in contrast, where the contractor's employment is terminated by the contractor or terminated by the client for force majeure, the contractor simply leaves the site and removes the equipment. Accordingly, as the client has no right to use the contractor's equipment or to assignment of the subcontracts, it will need to engage a new contractor if it wishes to complete the works. So looking at the amounts payable on termination, the payment is calculated in accordance with clauses 93.1 and 93.2. In summary, payments will be made for contractors work to date, but a contractor's costs of removing equipment and any contractor's lost profits will only be payable in circumstances where there is a no fault termination or the termination is by the contractor for client breach or insolvency or client termination at will where option X11 has been selected. The client's costs of completing the works will be payable where the termination was by the client for contractor breach or insolvency. Yes, and in all cases of termination, the amount due on termination will include the amounts for work done up to and including the date of termination, costs for plant and materials within the working areas or those to which the client has title and of which the contractor has to accept delivery, costs reasonably incurred in expectation of completing the whole of the works, and sums that have been retained by the client pursuant to the terms of the contract, save for any unpaid balance of any advance payment. A point to note is that in terms of the amendments to the NEC4 contracts published by the NEC in October 2020, all NEC4 contracts that allow for delay damages now specify that the contractor's liability for delay damages ceases upon termination. Yeah. Um, under NEC4 also, the project manager must certify the final payment due to or from the contractor within 13 weeks of termination as part of the final assessment process. Significantly, this means that under NEC4, the project manager's ass assessment is binding unless challenged within specified timescales, which depend on the method of dispute resolution selected. And if the project manager fails to make its assessment on time, the contractor may carry out its own assessment and send it to the client for agreement. Thanks Claire. So finally then we come to disputes. 
The NEC acknowledges that even with the best of intentions, disputes can and often do arise during the course of a construction project. There is a key difference with the dispute resolution process in the NEC to other standard form contracts, isn't there, Claire? Yes, so the NEC has a tiered system for resolving disputes and contains a number of dispute resolution provisions, including discussions between senior representatives of the parties, adjudication, dispute avoidance board recommendations, and then final resolution by litigation or arbitration. So in NEC 4 ECC, the dispute provisions are in options W1, W2 and W3, one of which must be selected when drafting the contract. The parties are also required to provide information in the contract data, for example, whether disputes are to be finally resolved by litigation, court proceedings or arbitration. If the contract is subject to the Construction Act, then option W2 must be selected, as this is the only one which allows disputes to be referred to adjudication at any time, and so therefore is compliant with the Act. The NEC dispute resolution provisions apply to disputes arising under or in connection with the contract. Such wording is generally considered wide enough to include non-contractual claims, for example a claim in tort, although option W3 refers more widely to potential disputes arising under or in connection with the contract being referred to the Dispute Avoidance Board. Let's look at each of these stages in a little more detail. Okay, so under options W1 and W2, first stage in any dispute is for it to be referred to a senior senior representative who is named in the contract data. It's worth noting that the NEC4 user guide advises that senior representatives should be individuals who have not been responsible for the day-to-day -day management of the project. Option W1 contains a dispute reference table which requires disputes about a number of items to be referred to senior representatives within four weeks of that dispute arising. These are an action or inaction of the project manager or supervisor, pro program compensation event or quotation for the compensation event treated as having been accepted, and assessment of defined cost, which is treated as correct. So what happens if disputes about those issues are not referred to a senior representative in those four weeks? Well, it appears that compliance with this time frame is a condition precedent to a party's entitlement to refer such disputes to senior re representatives. If a party fails to comply, then it would effectively be barred from pursuing resolution of that dispute. Under option W1, referral to senior representatives is a precondition to adjudication, which in turn is a precondition to litigation or arbitration. Other disputes, which will in practice be the majority of, dis of disputes, are to be referred to senior representatives when the dispute arises. It does not appear that this is intended to be a time bar. Thank you. Um, but in contrast, in option W2, the senior representative stage is optional, so it only applies if the parties agree to it and there are no time limits. If it was mandatory, then option W2 would not be compliant with the Construction Act, as it would not allow for disputes to be referred to adjudication at any time. So under W2, each party submits a short statement of case to the senior representatives who then have a period of three weeks in which to attempt to resolve the dispute using any procedure they consider necessary and produce a list of agreed and non-agreed issues. The statements of case or evidences of those discussions cannot be used in any subsequent adjudication, litigation or arbitration. So it leaves the parties free to talk about anything that they want to. Um, an amendment to options W1 and W2 was published in March 2019 to allow a party to replace its senior representative by giving notice to the other party. Yeah. 
and there are strict timings for the adjudication process under NEC4 ECC. Under option W1, a notice of adjudication is issued to the other party and the project manager within two weeks of the production of the list of issues by the senior representative or of the date by which it should have been produced. The dispute is then referred to the adjudicator within one week of that notice. Further information is provided to the adjudicator within four weeks of the referral, and the adjudicator then gives his or her decision within the four weeks of the end of the period of providing the further information unless extended by agreement. If the time limits applicable to the first two steps are not, with, are not complied with, the dispute cannot be referred to adjudication or litigation or arbitration. However, there is provision for the time limit to be extended prior to the expiry with the agreement of the contractor and project manager. How does this contrast with option W2, Claire? Well, under option W2, a notice of adjudication is given to the other party with a copy to the adjudicator at any time. The adjudicator then informs the parties whether he or she is able to act within three days of the notice. The dispute is then referred to the adjudicator within seven days of the notice and the parties provide further information within 14 days of the referral. And the adjudicator then gives his or her decision within 28 days of the referral. Unlike option W1, also option W2 expressly provides that time periods exclude Christmas Day, Good Friday and bank holidays. Yeah. The adjudicator's decision is binding on the parties unless and until the dispute is finally determined in litigation or arbitration. However, a key and important difference in the NEC contracts is that if a party is not satisfied with an adjudicator's de decision, it must give a notice of dissatisfaction within four weeks of being informed of the decision. Otherwise, that decision becomes final and binding and the dispute cannot be referred to litigation or arbitration. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, that, that sets the NEC4 apart from maybe other forms of construction contract, that, that time limit. Yeah. Um, so then we have the Dispute Avoidance Board. NEC4 saw the introduction of this process contained in option W3 as an alternative to adjudication. So the Dispute Avoidance Board process is different to adjudication as it results in a non-binding recommendation. Under option W3, a dispute cannot be referred to litigation or arbitration unless it has first been referred to the Dispute Avoidance Board. The board members are appointed at the very start of the project. The client specifies in part one of the contract data whether there are to be one or three members of the board. Um, once appointed, the members visit the site at interval, intervals specified in the contract data, the intention being that they inspect the works and become aware of any potential disputes and assist the parties in resolving any potential disputes referred to it by the parties. It's more of an ongoing process. Is there a similar time limit for notifying the Dispute Avoidance Board of a dispute, Claire? Yes, so a potential dispute must be referred to the board between two to four weeks after notification of the issue to the other party and project manager. But in contrast with option W1 in relation to adjudication, the contract does not expressly provide that a failure to comply with the time limit means that a party is barred from referring the potential dispute to the board. Following referral of a potential dispute to the board, the members visit the site and then provide a non-binding recommendation for resolving the dispute. And lastly, whichever option is selected, the final stage of the dispute resolution procedure is to refer the dispute to court or arbitration, referred to as the tribunal, as selected in the contract data. 
both options W1 and W2 provide that a dispute can only be referred to the tribunal if it has first been decided by an adjudicator. It is also important to be aware that a party can only refer a dispute to the tribunal if it is given a notice of dissatisfaction within four weeks of being informed of the adjudicator's decision or within four weeks of the provision of the Dispute Avoidance Board's recommendation. What should the notice of dissatisfaction look like, Claire? Well, the court has looked at this issue and has found that a notice of dissatisfaction with an adjudicator's decision must make clear that a party does not accept and is dissatisfied with the decision and intends to refer it to the tribunal. So it's simply just a written notice that says they are dissatisfied with the decision, but it doesn't have to detail why they are dissatisfied. Yes, exactly. The party issuing the notice is not required to explain or set out the grounds on which the decision is disputed, just that it is dissatisfied. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode on defects, termination and disputes under NEC, but also to the end of this series. So thank you again for tuning in today and listening to our final podcast in our Back to Basics NEC contract series by the construction and engineering team here at Stevens and Bolton. If you have any questions or would like any further information on what we have discussed today or during the rest of our NEC contracts podcast series, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself, Claire, or your usual Stevens and Bolton contact. Thank you, Claire.